All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from the borough of Queens. It is the 21st day of June, 2022. And I'd like to remind you that I publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. And call our office here in New York as well during normal work hours at 718-457-1426. Uh, we do like to remind you of uh, Michael Oliver's Momentum and Structural Analysis letter, an excellent letter, one that I can't really do without. OliverMSA.com is the uh, place to go to sign up for Michael's letter. And we also like to plug Chen Lin's work, uh, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, then you can uh, go to ChenPicks.com for that. Chen is especially strong on the biotechs and uh, a few of those that I'm following myself in my own newsletter because I find them really exciting, potentially big, uh, big winners. So uh, ChenPicks.com for Chen Lin's letter, what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. I want to thank all of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. also like to encourage you to send along whatever questions and comments you might have about the show to questions for Taylor at gmail.com, questions the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors making this show economically viable. They are, for this week, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Eloro Resources, Core Assets Corp, SK Mining, Timberline Resources, Lion One Metals, and Rena Gold Corp. Before I talk about today's show, I want to mention a listener to this show who I met at a L.L. Bean store in Yonkers, New York this past weekend. And I was shopping there with my wife when I heard this guy uh, named James Perito call out my name. He apparently recognized me from my YouTube channel where he listens to this show frequently. Long-time listener, he says. As is true with many of the listeners to this show, one of James' favorite guests is Michael Oliver, who will be with us in just a few minutes. I'm used to meeting listeners at various conferences that I speak at, but it's really cool to meet up with someone out of the blue, like James, along with his wife, just uh, just casually walking along in a store and met up with him, and he recognized me. And uh, we were, I'm very honored to have my pictures taken with James and his son and wife. It was really a, a fun time. My friends like to kid me about uh, having a great face for radio, uh, so I'm, I guess I have to be thankful to YouTube, uh, otherwise I never would have met. Uh, James. Anyway, it was a lot of fun and uh, always fun to meet listeners to this show. Uh, as I say, most often I meet them at conferences that I speak at, but uh, uh, that was a lot of fun. Anyway, today's show I've titled Why PhD Economists Don't Really Understand Inflation. Jeff Dice, Michael Oliver, Patrick Highsmith are guests this week. 
Suddenly, with exploding consumer prices stripping the fruits of labor away from average Americans and thus threatening the political status quo, TV talking heads have set aside concerns about COVID and Ukraine to focus on what Americans really care most about, namely the ability to put food on their table and gas in their cars. But do most of the talking heads on TV actually know what what inflation really is? Is it simply rising prices or is there more to it? When stock and bond prices rise to levels far in excess of their underlying historic intrinsic values, might that also be a form of inflation? Not only are average folks ignorant of what inflation really is, but so are those who are supposed to know and understand it. I'm speaking of the heavily indoctrinated Keynesian PhD economists that have increasingly fostered the idea that printing money to pay for trillions of dollars of government spending is not inflationary. But I think we may now be seeing the end of that big lie because the mathematics of massive debt growth, which is growing exponentially against very slow income growth, is leading the Western world towards bankruptcy. And the massive rise in inflation is starting to reveal that truth, in my view, uh, to those at least who have eyes to see. I address the, uh, the cause of America's financial decline in my Metals Investor Forum presentation, which you can watch via YouTube, simply go to uh, miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and scroll down to the significant weekly market headlines section, and uh, right at the top there will be a link uh, to my talk, which I titled, Back to an Honest Monetary System. Uh, And uh, in the second half of today's show, Jeff Dice, the president of Mises Institute, will share his thoughts on those and related topics as well. In the second segment of today's show, Patrick Heismick uh, will join me to update us on the emerging high-grade Carlin-style Nevada gold discovery. Uh, but right now, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again uh, to give us his latest thoughts on these turbulent markets. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me. And, uh, and your front-page article this week's 360-degree weekend report uh, was uh, you featured NASDAQ 100, and uh, it shows some rather ominous signs, if I'm reading uh, the charts correctly. Um, at least if you're bullish, it's ominous. Uh, today, the bulls seem to be having a pretty good time of it. Uh, does today's rally in any way change your views of the NASDAQ? No, n- not at all. <laughs> There'll be rallies all the way down. Um, our assessment is the top is in place. We said that in January for the NASDAQ 100 and February for the S&P. Um, Euro stocks 50, which is blue chips of Europe, they broke coincident with that. So we're getting consensus. And when we say break, we don't mean something that broke, that'll likely, you know, run three months and then that's it. We're talking about something that could run a year and a half or two. You know, we're wow. talking about an annual momentum decline. We're talking major bear, major bear market, just like in 2000 or just like in 2007, once they made their peaks. Um, <clears throat> it took a while. And there were great rallies all the way down, teasing rallies. Uh, you know, and you continue to hear it on, on the financial TV channels about, oh, where do you buy the dip? And all, it's not a dip. It's a bear market. Um, anyway, so, but what's, from an asset manager's point of view, and I, pardon me if I've made this point before, but I, I need to make it again, and we do in our, our, our weekly reports. Um, if you're an asset manager, there are certain acceptable categories that can fit into a portfolio. You know, they're not playing wild games. You know, we're not talking mm-hmm. hedge funds here. We're talking core asset management. That's mm-hmm. the stock market, high-yield corporate debt, municipal bonds, real estate, 
and treasury bonds. Those are the categories that are generally traditionally accepted as components in a portfolio, and, and also gold, yeah. which they don't like to admit, but it's, it's traditional. It's, it's always been there, and yes, if you need it, it's there. Okay. Um, it's now six months into the year. Everybody's screaming, and they should be. Most of the asset categories, instead of diversifying or diverging, are in sync with each other. That means government bonds are going down with the stock market. High-yield corporate debt going down with the stock market. Muni bonds going down with the stock market. Real estate going down with the stock. So that when you look at the normal components, you're pulling your hair out if you're an asset manager because there's no safe place to go. In fact, the Wall Street Journal in the last weekend's report said there's no safe place to go. Well, somebody ignored <laughs> the obvious. Gold is unchanged to up on the year. Here's Friday's numbers year-to-date. S&P down 23%. NASDAQ down 31 High-yield corporate debt down 15. Muni bonds down 10. Real estate ETFs down 24.5. If you want to throw in Bitcoin, down 57. <laughs> U.S. government bonds down 24. These are double-digit numbers. We're only <laughs> six months into the year. And yet there's that stubborn old gold market sitting there. Yes, it's been under selling pressure since March. But where is it? Last year, it closed at 1828.60. We're still up on the year, despite all the continued selling pressure. So if you're an asset mm-hmm. manager, whether you like gold or not, you look around and say, where's a place I can put some money where at least I'm beating my peers, you know, because I've shifted mm-hmm. 5% into gold, let's say. Well, it's gold. And as every week goes by, uh, we said a few weeks ago to our subscribers that, okay, the bears have been selling gold since March. And they keep selling gold, usually on Fed-based uh, statements or Fed-based interest rate rises. Okay, mm-hmm. they've been doing it since June of last year, when the Fed first said they were going to going to change policy. And gold won't won't cave; it just will not no. cave. Uh, and I think there's a reason for it. And I think the reason is that once the central banks reach their panic point, meaning they've gone too far. And I'm already hearing utterances from some Fed governors who are even hawks talking about, well, this isn't going to go on forever, meaning the rate rises. Uh, the fact that they even say that means that they're scared. Yeah. And I'm also hearing a lot of mainstream economists come out and condemn, or not condemn, but at least say, hey, listen, guys, you know, uh, inflation's a problem, but, but you, you're going to, the economy's a bigger one, uh, and this thing's getting out of hand. So our suspicion is, and I think gold knows it, that the central banks ultimately will have to reverse course and do what they do, what they were made for. And that is to monetize debt, pay for whatever it takes to stop the collapse of their bubbles, and gold will be the chief beneficiary. So we shall see. Yeah. Now, there's, well, another, we shall there's see. a near-term well, event that yeah. we've also identified. It's something that uh, over the long term really hasn't impacted gold much, and that's the dollar. Mm-hmm. The dollar at the when gold was at its low monthly close in December of 2015, price was $1,060. Since then, gold's done what? It's doubled. Okay? Dollar index is now 6% higher than it was six years ago, six and a half years ago. That's all. And yet everybody's screaming about the strong dollar. In fact, it's been a minor little uptick over a six-year period that did not it did not hurt gold, did not help gold. It was irrelevant to gold. Uh, gold still doubled. 
Right now, we see a situation developing in the foreign exchange markets that could be an ambush, what we call an ambush, meaning something that happens suddenly and quick, you know, quickly and surprises people. And what it looks like is the euro and the yen and other, some other foreign currencies look like they're ready to turn up. And we suspect you'll see the evidence of that within a couple of weeks, not right now, within two, three weeks. Uh, and the dollar turned down, and it could be significant. But what it looks like is it could be also rapid, which means surprising. And I think that would that little bit of wind could help gold. I don't think it needs it, basically, on a long-term basis, but I think it could definitely help. And I also think this downturn in, in the dollar could be terminal, meaning it, does, it doesn't just create a short-term ambush where the dollar caves you know, four or five percent, but it gets it going in a more major direction to the downside. So anyway, I think that's that's an event out there nobody's looking at right now, but we are. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it ties in very well with what you said a moment ago about people becoming worried about the economy. Uh, Alistair McCloud makes the point frequently on this show that the the Fed has a choice basically between a, a holding asset prices up. That means inflating the currency and keeping the bubble, keeping air in the in the bubble, or defending the dollar. And as you're mm -hmm. suggesting, um, it seems pretty clear history is our guide. Now they would like us to think uh, that we have the second coming of Paul Volcker. Now they'd like us to think that that's possible. I don't see that <laughs> anywhere possible. Nope. And uh, so I, I hear what you're saying, and this is interesting to hear from your perspective as a technical analyst from your your um, you know proprietary technical point of view uh, that the dollar could be in for some for a swift demise I, I don't think anybody believes that I don't think many people anyway are even are thinking in those terms managers out there of substance who do uh -huh. hold that same view fund on based uh -huh. on fundamentals and mm -hmm. uh, and they recognize the recent rally but they don't they dismiss it as likely transitory uh, Jeff Gundlach is one guy in particular who's mm -hmm. recently uttered that that view that uh, the next downturn could be serious. Um, as far as Alistair is concerned, he just had an article in the Mises Institute. I suggest to your yeah. listeners that they check out the Von Mises Institute site. Oh, good. Uh -huh. uh, I, I, it's, it's not technical. It's totally intellectual, economic, uh -huh. uh, and political, and libertarian. And I, I share much with that with those folks, and Jeff Dice, is your guest today, another guest. Yes, who we'll ask Mises him about Institute. that. Uh -huh. Anyway, yep. I recommend to... Uh, your listeners, they check out the Von Mises site. They'll find it quite interesting. Very, Very good. Very okay. good. Thank you for that, uh, Michael. We'll, we'll certainly bring it up with Jeff when we talk to him about it as yeah. well. All right, folks. Uh, thank you again, Michael, for being with thank us. You. It's always great to have you, uh, and we'll look to talk to you again in a couple of weeks from now. Uh, all right, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Patrick Highsmith will join me. Timberline Resources is on to what could be a very exciting discovery. It's a Carlin-style, very high-grade discovery, the way it looks. A lot of good news coming forth from there, so don't go away. Patrick Highsmith will be with us right after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. 
Lion 1 is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion 1 trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at lion1metals.com for more information about Lion 1 Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have Patrick Highsmith with me once again. He is the President and CEO and a Director of Timberline Resources. And uh, he's been on this show a number of times, but uh, for those of you who don't know Patrick, he is uh, over, I guess, around 30 years of experience as an exploration geologist in all areas of the business, actually, um, in the capital markets, as well as uh, just exploring around for household name companies like Newmont and BHP and uh, companies like that. So he's, his background is really, I think, very well suited to lead a junior mining company because he has all these different skill sets that are required uh, to get things moving in a positive direction. And speaking of a positive direction, the company certainly has been doing that with some really good numbers. Assay reports that have come out since the last time we spoke to Patrick um, on May Third, I believe it was, and a week or two later, come out with uh, some very good news. I'm really pleased to have him on with me. Before I say hello, I should just tell you that it trades uh, in the United States over the counter under the symbol TLRS. You can buy it in Canada. TBR is a symbol there, 159.7 million shares, trading at around 17 cents in U.S. money. If my arithmetic is right, that gives it a market cap of around 27 million in U.S. money. Very low market cap with some exciting potential ahead of uh, ahead of this company. So, uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Jay. Good to be with you. Yeah. Um, so now you you put out some really exciting news uh, on your on your project uh, in Nevada. And um, I think it was May 11th, uh, you put out some news on the Oswego target. Um, before I ask you to comment on that, can you talk about, you, you have a, about a half a million ounces in the measured and indicated category already. Uh, the existing resource that you have there, uh, is that related to, is that part of the same system of what you're exploring now? Yes, Jake. Timberline has had since 2013 a National Instrument 43101 uh, reported resource at, at the Lookout Mountain area of the Eureka Project. And it is, as you say, about 500,000 ounces of gold in the measured and indicated category, grading about 0.62 grams per ton. So with those grades, Jay, you can tell that that resource uh, is at surface and it has a significant component of oxide mineralization, which means there may be the potential that that is heap leachable gold. 
And, and that's why when you see a low-grade deposit like that in Nevada at surface, a number of companies, of course, uh, starting back, of course, with the big boys, have advanced those types of grades and tons into uh, into heap leach mines. And if you want to think about that resource as sitting kind of at the surface, um, what we've been drilling at the water well zone and, and has really gotten people excited over the first half of this year with our new results is kind of the, the roots of that, Jay. It's down dip uh, from that resource. There are important faults and structures uh, that uh, may, may in fact, sort of have been the feeders into that system that's sitting at the surface. Um, so, yeah, I would say that when folks look back and they see the name, you know, Lookout Mountain, us talking about the Lookout Mountain resource a lot more than sort of the whole Eureka project, it is quite related. What we're drilling at the water well zone is immediately adjacent to but not inside that resource. So anything mm-hmm. we find at the water well zone will be new tons. And new ounces, you know, hence all the excitement with a number of these, you know, higher grade intercepts, a lot of intercepts greater than five grams per ton, for instance. So, mm-hmm. so yes, uh, the existing resource is related to the exploration we're doing now. However, these would be new tons and, and new ounces that are not included in that. Right. And some of those numbers that I'm looking at, the uh, headline number from your May 18th report on the Waterwell Zone, 24.4 meters grading 3.85 grams per ton including 4.6 meters grading 8.35 grams per ton. And, I mean, another, I guess, uh, 7 meters or so grading 5.72 grams per ton. Those are pretty good numbers. Um, you're gonna, I guess you'll probably continue to drill and explore the water well zone this summer. Yes, that, that's the theme for this summer, the lion's share of this summer's work, Jay. And, and we do have two drill rigs out there right now. Uh, at the water well zone. The release you mentioned since we talked on May 18th uh, was really the third core hole that has gone through this zone, uh, this new zone at the water well zone, we call it. And uh, and that was a great intercept, as you said, 24.4 meters at almost four grams per ton. And that just adds on to the really strong results we announced in February and March uh, there that were you know even thicker and even higher grade than that zone. So mm-hmm. that was the third new core hole into the zone, and that's really helped us define the footprint that we're looking to expand with uh, this summer's drilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier than that, on May 11th, you also put out another news release uh, on the Oswego target, which is to the southeast, a long strike, I guess, from the – so you have the Lookout Mountain in between – then you have the, the water well, and then you have the Oswego target. Also some good numbers there uh, on May 11th. What did you learn from that uh, from that drilling? Yeah, thanks for that, Jay. I'll try to kind of paint a picture that, that folks can understand here, and they can certainly get to our website and see our presentation. But um, the Oswego zone, as you said, it's about a kilometer away from uh, where we've been drilling at the water well zone. And it's not really uh, on strike, Jay. On strike would imply that these faults are kind of connected up uh, in these zones. And what the water well zone is, uh, is kind of a parallel structure to the Oswego okay. structure. So, mm-hmm. however, when folks are looking at our, our corporate presentation, for instance, they can see a cross section, kind of a slice through the earth. Uh-huh. And there you get a feel for the symmetry and what's important about Oswego. Mm-hmm. Oswego is on a structure about a kilometer away, and we did drill some really nice uh, intercepts there. No drill had been there, Jay, in, in, in over 30 years, we think. And we mm-hmm. had the historic data there. We knew uh, there was good grade at surface, 
Uh, we announced some really impressive surface samples there, uh, a long interval grading 14.5 grams per ton. That was 26 meters, 27 meters of channel samples that graded mm-hmm. 12 grams per ton wow. along this fault. Now, those aren't true thickness. That's just showing you that fault is consistently mineralized. So we needed to drill under it. We did so. And as you say, we hit about 35.1 meters of 2.3 grams per ton, which included, Jay, 19.8 meters of 3.93. Now, what's important about that, Jay, is it was really near surface, so effectively at the surface, right underneath those channel samples we had taken. And the mineralization there was oxide. Oh. So, again, you know, a lot more testing required, Jay, but it might be amenable to uh, a lower cost form of processing uh, in the future if we turn this into an economic discovery. So if you picture this, you look north on the left side, you have the Lookout Mountain resource, the water well zone with that high grade we've been talking about. And on the right side, you have this Oswego showing with high grade at surface and now a couple of drill holes that hit gold underneath it. And then you can imagine what if those systems kind of connect uh, in that valley at depth and right down the middle of that valley. We've been talking about it for, you know, over a year is this big geophysical anomaly, uh, an IP chargeability anomaly that we finally drill tested and reported earlier in the season that it does have pyrite and other alteration associated with it. It does have a long zone of silver associated with it and some very interesting gold associated with it. So, so really the symmetry of the system implies they could be connected at surface. And that would just make the whole thing a lot bigger, Jay, with with high grade on each side and maybe a big volume of mineralization down there below. Certainly a lot of potential for that. But meanwhile, this summer, Jay, we're going to drill out the shallow portions of this thing. You know, we're going to drill more at Oswego on that trend and we're going to drill more at Waterwell. In fact, Waterwell will probably be expanding the Waterwell zone will probably constitute 60 to 70 percent of our budget for the 2022 drill program, which is already underway. I have to ask you about this uh, silver occurrence um, on the IP anomaly. Is this be a different sort of a mineralization event? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it before, Jay. These world-class districts, particularly here in Nevada, where you have these major trends, Jay, they continue for miles, and we have multiple producing mines on them, the Carlin Trend. Uh, here on the Battle Mountain Eureka trend where we are, those uh, structures are like plumbing. And so what probably happened here is Eureka was made famous for in 1863, I believe it was, 1864 maybe, a very significant silver lead zinc discovery. And for a time in the late 1800s, it was the number two silver producer in the country. Now, that system was older, uh, geologically older than the Carlin-type gold that we're currently drilling at the Waterwell Zone or that I-80 gold is drilling up north, for instance. But that mineralization, that silver lead zinc mineralization came in first and probably related to an intrusive rock, a a granite-type rock down there that we've drilled into, we've confirmed is present in our district. And that long run, it was over 200 meters uh, that ran over 5.2 grams per ton silver. Um, that interval uh, is related to earlier mineralization, to be sure, but it used the same plumbing, Jay. So what happens is the Carlin-type system, so that system's over 100 million years old, probably. The Carlin-type systems are around 37 to 40 million years old. They came in later, and they use the same plumbing, and often we'll find the gold and silver in close proximity to each other, but the rocks look a little bit different. And we can usually tell uh, what type of system we're in. But sometimes we do uh, some geochemistry, analyze for other elements, and that tells us, oh, okay, this has silver lead zinc. That's not a Carlin-type system. 
Um, but the same thing we saw reported from I-80 Gold recently up at their Ruby Deeps project. You see this older system, and then you see the gold system coming in later around it. We see this as a good thing. It tells us this structure is is pumping metal into these rocks multiple times in its geologic history. And uh, world-class deposits tend to do that, Jay. So it just makes us even more excited, even though we're not really chasing a silver mine. You expect to hit some sulfides this year? or uh, I mean, how deep do these oxides go? Yeah, it's a good question always, Jay. We, we know the water well zone uh, has been yielding sulfide intercepts, uh, these very high-grade intercepts, though, such as the, the 41 meters of 5 grams we reported earlier in the year, the 44 meters of 4.1 grams, both of which have considerable mineralization over 10 grams per ton. We've got about 10 samples in there that are running greater than 10 grams per ton. That's all in sulfide mineralization. We can see that when we examine them, Jay, and we also analyze our samples for an additional uh, uh, leach test of the gold to help us determine is it sulfide or is it oxide. So we can see those are sulfide. Across the valley at Oswego, though, uh, as I reported, uh, we've had some oxide there. So we don't predict the oxide to go to great depths, Jay. Um, in our in our Lookout Mountain resource, there's certainly oxide. We did some preliminary metallurgical test work uh, that indicates that, that some of that material may be leachable. So it's hard to say, Jay. I wouldn't expect it to go uh, certainly uh, more than 20 or 30 meters below surface uh, in great abundance. But there are tons out there. We do find oxide deeper than that. And it just takes a lot of hard work. Uh, keep drilling, keep doing rigorous analyses and, and paying careful attention to the mineralogy. And we'll know what we've got uh, as we proceed with the resource uh, development. And that'll be clear. We update the resource. We'll certainly be making clear to folks, uh, you know, whether this is oxide or sulfide. We always note in our press releases, for mm-hmm. instance, Jay, when we drill oxide. Sure. Uh, well, the Ruby Hill mine to the north, not very far away from your project. Uh, I mean, it had some pretty spectacular numbers coming out of there as well, I think. Do you see this as a – is it very similar geology? Is it, or is it the same or what? Yeah, great great question. As I said, we're we're doing exploration in Nevada on trend. Okay, mm-hmm. we're not uh, we're not out you know in the middle of nowhere yeah. hoping there's gold here. <laughs> and uh, we look at the Eureka District as uh, a really significant uh, gold district, Jay. And that's kind of news to the world. When I eighty Gold acquired the Ruby Hill Mine, they of course set about preparing a technical report. And in that, they disclosed all the historic work that had been done there, as well as their own work. And they announced at that time that this uh, project contains 7.8 million ounces, I believe it is, in indicated and inferred ounces of gold resources. Now, prior to that, there had been historic production of 1.8, 1.5 million ounces of gold by both Homestake and Barracks. So, you know, almost over 9 million ounces right there. Now, um, if you follow south from there, we're the dominant claim owner in the district. Uh, we have around... 57%, I think, of the of the tenements in this district. So we're the biggest tenement holder. And if, as you come south from there, about four kilometers, you get into our project. And uh, we straddle, us and I-80J, we straddle this, this sort of corridor of rocks that are Cambrian to Ordovician in age. They are shales, dolomites, and limestones. And those make potentially good hosts for carlin-type deposits. And this corridor comes right out of I-80's ground south uh, into our ground, and we share what we're calling the Eureka Gold Belt, sort of straddled on this belt of rocks. And they're, of course, much more advanced than we. They're drilling these 
600 meter holes down into the Ruby Deeps and their other projects up there. And of course, there's a sizable, you know, gold mine on their property that Homesake and Barrick operated. But we're more in the exploration stage, but we've added already 500,000 ounces of resources to the picture. There's historic production on our property from both windfall and lookout that that add up to, you know, about 120,000 ounces or 25,000 ounces, something like that. When you add all that up, this is clearly a 10 million ounce district, Jay. Very similar setting for what we're drilling. Some of the exact same host rocks that host gold at Ruby Hills Project, host gold at, um, at our project. And we believe this district's just going to explode with potential. We, we think there could easily be more than 20 million ounces in this district. And uh, it's just really exciting to see who's going to drill out those resources. And with those great uh, drill results from I-80 and the strong results we've had in the first half of this year, we think uh, this part of Nevada is one of the hottest places to explore. Yeah, it sure seems like it. And you have a lot of uh, you, you have permission to do a lot of drilling there too. I think permits in place, right? Yeah, very important to note. We have a plan of operations with over 250 permitted drill sites. Jay, it's ongoing work to keep updating that permit to to do concurrent reclamation with your work. It's a sizable project out there. Uh, right now. And uh, there's no uh, sort of uh, constraints on us drilling this year uh, based on permitting, for sure. We've already gotten busy uh, with two rigs turning as we speak. And you're well-funded, I believe, uh, Patrick, to carry you through uh, this year's program? The program we've launched is fully funded. Uh, we raised uh, just under $4.8 million, ounces, a million dollars, uh, USJ, in, uh, in May and announced that, so, uh, or in April, May. And so, yeah, fully funded for this program, and we can just focus on getting out there and drilling holes and, and reporting the news back to you and the market. Who knows? It might be 4.8 million ounces. It was a slip <laughs> of the tongue, a Freudian slip, I suppose. But nonetheless, um, this is a kind of district where that is possible. We're not we're not promising anything, folks, but it's early stages. But what should investors be looking out for, potential share price drivers? Well, we've just announced today, Jay, the, the uh, kind of a summary of the program for 2022. We're going to drill uh, uh, you know, approximately 6,000 meters or so, between five and 6,000 meters, I would say. A lot of that will be core drilling around the water well zone, probably, as I said, 60 to 70 percent of the focus there. And news flow will start in, in the late summer. The labs are quite backed up. Um, we've got a few little things going on. There may be some news flow across the summer with uh, some earlier stage exploration results from some of our other work or a little property acquisition here or there as we take care of our uh, of our land position. But I would say late summer, the new flow will really begin. Uh, some of the first holes will be from the water well zone for sure. But we'll, we'll be returning to Oswego and we'll be testing this. We'll be really stretching out this drilling, following up on that high grade. Uh, things are just kind of wide open, as folks can see from the map we put in the news release. There's a lot of room and uh, we're going to be testing that. So uh, great news flow across the summer, particularly picking up in the late summer. Jim. All right. We'll certainly be uh, looking forward to watching it, keeping an eye on it. Thank you so much, Patrick, for updating us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Jeff Dice, he's the president of the Mises Institute, will be with us to explore why the Fed's track record is so abysmal when it comes to predicting the future. We'll be right back with Jeff Dice. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Reina Gold is a newly listed company trading on the OTCQB under the symbol REYGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol REYG. Its flagship asset, La Gloria, is a 24,000-hectare district-scale property in the prolific Mojave Sonora Megashear in Mexico, between La Herradura, Mexico's biggest gold mine by Fresnillo, and El Xonate mine by Alamos Gold. La Gloria has very high-grade sampling and is in the first phase of a 10,000-meter drill program. The technical team is led by Dr. Peter McGaugh, co-founder of Mag Silver, and Doug Kirwin, former VP of Ivanhoe Mines. Learn more at reinagold.com. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me a longtime friend, Jeff Dice. He is the president of the Mises Institute. That's an educational organization that's uh, dedicated to promoting Austrian economics, freedom, and peace. Uh, and Jeff previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul. He is a tax attorney, having represented high net worth individuals, partnerships, and corporations in a wide variety of tax manners. His, uh, ta- his tax career includes a uh, time with two different big four accounting firms specializing tax issues arising from mergers and acquisitions for private equity firms. But now he is totally immersed in his role in helping people understand why Austrian economic policies are key to peace and prosperity. Jeff is an excellent public speaker, and he frequently interviews fascinating guests at Mises.org. That's the uh, Mises website, Mises, M-I-S-E-S, dot org. Um, and um, I strongly encourage you to go there, uh, learn to know about what the Austrian School of Economics is all about, if you're not already familiar with it, but even if you are, go there, because there's just an ongoing, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good interviews and uh, articles and so forth that are displayed there. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a million, Jay. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while, and I, I should mention also that people can follow you on Twitter at, at Jeff Deist, at Jeff, J-E-F-F-D-E-I-S-T. Uh, Jeff, I'd like to start out by asking you a question that Adam Taggart frequently asks his guests on his Wealthion interviews, and that is this. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Shaky, Jay. 
shaky <laughs> like the San Andreas Fault. How's that? <laughs> well, I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> Here's the thing is we need a corrective. That's the problem with the Bidens of the world, the Yellens of the world, the Jerome Powell's of the world. They think that their job is to prevent a recession. That's not their job. Their job is not to manage the economy. The economy will manage itself just fine. The problem is that by trying to manage the economy on both the fiscal side and the monetary side, there's two different sides, uh, they end up creating bubbles, in my opinion, and those bubbles need to deflate. In other words, the recession is the cure. The thing we're trying to avoid is the cure is like taking your vitamins or eating your broccoli or, or taking your antibiotic. It's, it, it's the cure. It's necessary to expose and wipe out all the bad debt, all the malinvestment. And so the more we try to beat off uh, the recession, the more we just prolong things and, and in some cases even pass them on to future generations. So it's a, it's a serious problem. It's a serious problem, no doubt about that. Uh, it, it seems to me, Jeff, that these aren't people that necessarily mean evil. They don't mean to do us harm. I, I think they're just, they're just uh, well, we've all been taught Keynesian economics in our Economics 101 classes. You can't, I mean, that's the only economic school of thought. Do you, you know of any, hardly any universities anywhere that teach the Austrian school of economics, which is really a free market, government hands off, central banks hands off of the economy and let people be free to trade and, uh, and, and you know, and rise or fall by their own uh, successes or failures. Uh, can you maybe just give a brief definition of Keynesian economic theory and perhaps contrast that with Austrian school thought? I think the biggest difference is the emphasis on production versus consumption. I mean, uh -huh. at the end of the day, John Maynard Keynes comes along with this general theory in the 1930s and, and really uh, creates an upheaval and in many ways upends a lot of what we thought was true from the classical Adam Smith or now neoclassical school of economics. So basically, mm -hmm. ever since then, for almost 100 years now, but certainly since the 1930s, the entire profession of economics and, and politics to a lesser extent has been in bed with this idea, that, well, we got to create demand, Jay. We got to stimulate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got to create demand and make people buy more stuff <laughs> because consumption drives an economy. And mm -hmm. of course, we know that that's absolute nonsense. First of all, we all want more stuff. That's innate in us yeah. as humans, is mm -hmm. to have more and bigger and better. We don't have to stimulate that. What we have to do to get more stuff is actually become more productive, mm -hmm. uh, both on our, in our personal lives, but also on a, in a macro sense. So a long time ago, Jean-Baptiste Say, the French economist, came up with Say's Law, which in, in effect, we might say, no pun intended, is that <laughs> production creates consumption. In other words, as an individual or as a society, how much you produce is generally going to determine your income and thus your ability to consume. So mm -hmm. we have to get the horse before the cart. The horse is production. So how do you get a more productive society? Well, uh, both businesses and individuals have to be profitable, which means they have to bring in more income than they spend. They have to save or invest the difference, and that savings and investment has to go into creating more productive uh, ways of bringing goods and services to the marketplace, right? That's, I mean, this isn't rocket science, folks, but instead we have this mania, this mania that if we create lots of money and credit, 
We've certainly done that in response to COVID. Holy mm-hmm. smokes. Mm-hmm. About $6 trillion just on the fiscal side. Forget the Fed, folks. Yeah. Just on the tr- fiscal side, Congress, just in the United States, put about $6 trillion right into the economy, into uh, companies, PPP loans, into state and local governments, into individual taxpayers' bank accounts, into corporate subsidies, into the balance sheet of airlines, you name it. I mean, that's $6 trillion in actual spendable cash that's out there sloshing around. And so we wonder why there's price inflation. That's absurd, Jay. Yeah, and uh, if you encourage consumption and discourage production, you know, it's not hard to understand, is it? But that's, um, so we've been told, though, for a long time, Jeff, and it seems as though, um, you know, we haven't had, this this is the mainstream thought, we haven't had an inflation problem until now. And now all of a sudden, they say now we have inflation. Maybe uh, you could give us the definition of the Austrian schools, uh, the Austrian school definition of inflation, for example, because I don't think it matches up with the common thought of what inflation is or what you hear on the news media every day. Yeah, it really is something that all these Johnny Come Latelys are suddenly talking about inflation, from Time Magazine to pop stars to, you know, the whole thing's just absurd. I, I mean, look, first of all, inflation's a policy. It's not something that just comes along and happens like the weather changes or somebody gets cancer. No, no, no. Inflation is a policy. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's predictable. It's foreseeable. Second of all, inflation is, yes, as Milton Friedman said, a monetary phenomenon, but that's not the whole story. Inflation is a monetary devaluation. Okay, uh, Just like anything else, there's supply and demand for money. So mm-hmm. uh, a pair of Levi's jeans today maybe $45, $50, it's actually cheaper in real terms than a pair of Levi's jeans in the 1970s. Okay, there's a lot more money today. Mm -hmm. So how do we explain that? Well, supply and demand, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are factors bigger than monetary policy at work. Mm -hmm. And we do not subscribe to the so-called quantity theory of money, which simply says that, you know, the more money in circulation, the, the higher prices. It depends. Each good and service is distinctive. Right, the demand for a DVD player today and the supply—it's not the same as it was in 1990. Right, a DVD right. player, nobody wants one now. You can barely yeah. give them away. Yeah. So, supply and demand are always operative. The question is, what would prices be absent all the monetary interventions? Mm-hmm. That's the question, and that's unknowable because we yeah. had the monetary intervention. So, it is a a purposeful devaluation of the currency by creating more of it. So, all things equal. All things equal in supply and demand. If we could freeze the economy and people still wanted DVD players, for example, you know, if you create a bunch more money in credit and that's chasing the same number of DVD players, I mean, you know, that's you can create money in credit faster than the DVD industry right. can create a bunch of new players. So, yes, mm-hmm. all things equal. The quantity theory of money suggests that uh, the more of it there is, the less each dollar's worth. And and that's exceedingly true, even when we have this exorbitant privilege of being the world's reserve currency. So the whole world needs dollars to clear international transactions and to buy oil in many cases. The world needs dollars more than it otherwise would were it not for Bretton Woods and our military power and and OPEC and all kinds of geopolitical reasons. But it still doesn't matter. It Mm -hmm. still doesn't matter is that when you create a lot more 
money and credit and you haven't had that doesn't mean that does not bring any new goods or services into existence no, i don't no. don't understand why this is so difficult for people you mm-hmm. money and credit's not what makes us rich more goods and services brought to market in a more affordable which is a more productive manner that's what makes us better off yeah so out of the great depression i guess Keynes thought that he did wasn't seeing anybody buy anything so he wanted to stimulate demand so i guess that's that's the inflation policy that you're talking about. To stimulate demand, you put money in people's hands. Uh, that's the idea, uh, to get them to buy things. But if you don't have something on the other side of the equation, the production, and we've seen this, haven't we, Jeff, in spades with the COVID. Uh, and now, of course, supply chain uh, disruptions, not only from COVID, but as a result of the war. So we're seeing this mm. massive increase in, in demand that's created by artificial means, money going into the system. Uh, but we don't have the supply side. Uh, the supply side uh, rising at the same same rate of speed. The quantitative uh, the quantity theory of money. Then that's the monetarist. That's Milton Friedman, right? That's that's his view. Yes, basically that you adjust the supply of money on the monetary side, like a dial, that uh, <laughs> on a you know like a volume dial on a stereo, mm-hmm. and you turn it up or down depending on the needs of the economy. And of course. Mm-hmm. I think that's nonsense. I think money can produce itself and provide itself, and the quantity demanded or sought can be determined by the marketplace. But that's a mm-hmm. long way from the system we've got. Right. I think the monetarists generally tend to be free market people except for money. Uh, and I suppose that's one reason why a lot of Republicans tend to identify with the uh, with the, with the monetarists, right? Would you agree with that? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, all right. So we have this um, this whole money going into the system, uh, the the ability to create money. Um, it. I, I just I just have to ask you, why do you think we've got the Keynesians, and it's the only school, it's the only thought in town. Well, not quite. The Mises Institute uh, and a few other people here and there that are letting people know that you know free market economics actually do work if people are free. Um, you know, you know, the government puts its thumb on the scale by printing money. Uh, it, money is available to whatever it wants. The government wants to to direct it towards. Um, but is there some reason why? I guess what I'm at wanting to ask you is why do you think it is that only the Keynesian, only Keynesian economics is taught in universities? Why aren't we free to hear some other sides of hmm. some other thoughts? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have an excellent answer for that. I think first and foremost, there's an atavistic, natural human tendency to desire to want to control things around us, Mm -hmm. our environment. Mm -hmm. And when you get into big modern governments, they want to control everything from housing to energy to food to money. Why wouldn't they, Mm -hmm. right? That's the nature of government, to grow and expand and try to assert itself over ever-widening turf. So that's very human. And we also, I think it's very human to seek order out of chaos. And so we mm-hmm. like to imagine that someone is steering the ship and that mm-hmm. there are these really smart guys. And they are smart. Alan Greenspan, mm-hmm. Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, uh, Jerome Powell, they're very smart. You know, that mm-hmm. there's these smart people who know more than us and went to Wharton or someplace. Mm-hmm. And they're going to figure this out and take care of us and have our interests at heart, you know. And that's, I think there's a lot of, that. that's very appealing to people on a political basis, right? The idea mm-hmm. that adults are in charge. I think we mm-hmm. all want that to be the case, but it isn't the case. And so whether we like it or not, we have, uh, I think, responsibility to take a look at the monetary system and figure it out and try to understand what's going on uh, so that we don't absolutely ruin our kids and grandkids. And we are ruining them, Jay. They have, mm-hmm. They're far less optimistic than we were at their age. They have less money 
than we did at their age. They are married and, and owning homes at much lower rates than we were at their age. Mm-hmm. And most importantly is they're just generally less hopeful and more pessimistic. I mean, when I was a young guy in the 80s, for example, I thought my future was going to be pretty bright. And yet the only mm-hmm. real worries we had was, you know, they had some ups and downs. There was that recession in the 80s. You had, you know, you had the Soviets and their nuclear weapons. But for the most part, we more or less thought that we were going to do as well or better than our parents unless we screwed up our lives somehow on a personal level. And and when we lose that, I mean, you know, monetary policy, fiscal policy, all these things can be dealt with if we have the heart, if we have yeah. the stones, if we have the will. But if we mm-hmm. lose that, Jay... Mm-hmm. And we're we're just not Americans at that point. Yeah. Well, I you know you you mentioned um, the world's mon- the world's reserve currency and the advantages that that has. I wonder if it's not also a curse because it has allowed us to run these huge deficits, these huge debts. In the meantime, China has been a net exporter. It's built up cur- foreign currency reserves, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of foreign currency reserves. Uh, and I'm wondering, in terms of understanding the monetary system, I have to ask your thoughts about uh, Putin's recent moves after you know his currency sunk. It just went straight down after he went into the Ukraine. Uh, but then he, you know, he, well, first of all, he increased his the interest rates from nine and a half to twenty percent, I believe. He, that was his first move to try to steady the ruble. Mm. Um, and then, uh, very shortly after that, on March 25th, he tied gold to. Uh, I think it was 500, if I remember right, something, 500 rubles to a gram of gold, some some number like that. And then, right after that, he told all the unfriendly countries that wanted to buy his natural gas, they're going to have to pay him in rubles, much as the United States did, uh, Kissinger did, under, after we went off the gold standard. Sort of uh, putting something real under the money, under the ruble, and the ruble's been the strongest currency in the world since then, I think, or one of the strongest anyway since then. Um, any thoughts about that? Do you think there's any chance? Alistair McLeod talks about this sort of thing on our show frequently. Do you see any sort of chance that maybe someone might wake up and realize that mm. we need to have something real underlying, some intrinsic value per unit of currency? Yeah, it's not something you take a son of a bitch like Putin. At least he's a son of a bitch in the interests of his own people, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and what's so scary about this terrible war of course, is that not America so much, but a lot of the developing world is so reliant on wheat exports coming out of that part of the world and fertilizer. Even America is pretty dependent on fertilizer. Ukraine's a, was yeah. uh-huh. a big export of fertilizer. And now they're cut off from coastal access if they're even able to produce uh, while they're getting bombed and, and, and all that. So that's that's scary. I, I do think that the East, I would let's let's call Russia the East Okay. In this conversation, China, India, I, I do think that people there have more of a sense of having something back up. The, the currency gold is still a huge uh, cultural uh, you know, issue in places like India. It's still given as a dowry. People still tend to own a lot of it. In other words, any place where people haven't been so fat and happy on fiat currencies for uh-huh. decades – uh-huh. They tend to view things a little more clear-eyed and say, hey, you know, we need something with real value. Mm-hmm. And oil has real value. Wheat has real value. And so if gold has real value. And so if you underlie the ruble with those things, it probably helps the ruble. Uh, you know, if only we could do that here. Yeah. Well, what are the, sh- what are the chances? I mean, I guess uh, nobody's thinking in those terms. Now, as long as things work, 
I mean, why wouldn't you continue to do what you if you if you can run a um, a counterfeit currency? Why not do it, Jeff? You know, you can you can. But here's the thing: I have to ask you about this because we've seen uh, there's a there's a wonder well, there's a website called WTF happened in 1971. <laughs> I, don't know if I don't know if you've seen that or not. But from 1971, yes. it's an inflection point, and everything has gone downhill in terms of an egalitarian, let's say, um, um, you know, a society that 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 is paid for for what it produces, as opposed to you know what you know instead of who you know, uh, or what you do instead of, you know, so so, um, so I'm just wondering. Uh, that's a, the, the the whole idea of how we went from a very egalitarian society in which yeah the people at the top of a corporation did very well but so did the people in the middle and we had a, mm-hmm. a you know I, you and I both come from Ohio we know what the world was like uh, I'm a little older than you but I remember when times were really quite good in Canton Ohio industry was booming uh, with just a couple of minutes left here maybe thoughts on on that well it is true that ever since um we abandoned gold. The U.S. economy has been hollowed out in many ways. And more importantly, uh, it's become possible for Congress to live beyond its means. I don't know why. Well, <laughs> I wonder sometimes why such a ready market exists for our treasuries. If I were, let's say, a foreign person or a foreign creditor, I would look at the United States Congress and say, these guys are insane. They're never going to get their fiscal house in order. If I'm going to loan them money, I need junk bond rates. But yet here we are with even 10 years, just above 3%. So that just shows you Uncle Sam is still the least dirty shirt in the laundry, I guess. Well, I think that's the only reason. And of course, liquidity issues and so on and so forth. But there is a sense among a lot of people that this this game may be coming to an end or at least ready to change fairly, uh, fairly dramatically. Jeff, we'll have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. But I would like to tell people uh, to go to the Mises.org, partake of a lot of great information there. Uh, Jeff uh, provides an, uh, a lot of things. He does a lot of interviews. There's a lot of great articles there. Uh, it's not fluff. It's it's real. And sometimes you have to work a little harder to get to the truth uh, and understand it. But I think it's well worth your time to go to Mises.org uh, and, uh, and avail yourselves to that. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us today. Sure. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Next week, uh, the man who flew his airplane under the Eiffel Tower, Bob Moriarty, will be with me. And Michael Spreadbarrel, he's the CEO of Noble Resources, he'll join me to talk about that company's future. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 